Thank you. Good morning, everybody. Lovely to see you. We have a plaque in our house that says, that we put out Christmas time, it says, it's the most wonderful time of the year. It's full of bling, it's full of sparkle. Do you agree? We do. Hopefully we do. But I come this morning to talk to us just for a few minutes about Talking Jesus, to recognise that whilst it is a wonderful time of the year, for so many, and maybe for us, it actually comes with mixed emotion, doesn't it? Some, for some people it comes with memories of Christmases gone by, it comes with grief of people that we've lost, it comes with the reality of the current situation that we find ourselves in, you know, the cost of living crisis, the stuff that we've been through over the last, what, four, nearly five, going into six years of COVID. COVID and all that that's bought, it is a wonderful time of the year. But let's be honest, it's challenging as well, isn't it, for maybe ourselves and our own families and for the wider community. And yet still in the middle of Christmas, there is good news. And that's why we're here and we look at this tree which has the marvellous little baubles on that say Jesus, the heart of the Christmas message. I'm not here to preach to you this morning, but it's just good, isn't it, for us to remember that actually against this wonderful time of the year backdrop with all the festivities and the bling and the glitz and the good stuff, it's deeply challenging for some people in our wider communities and maybe much closer to home too. But just for a few minutes, I'd love you to look at the gift that I've given you this morning on your seats. Hopefully you might have found one, which is the Talking Jesus Research Report. You, not may, you may not be a research brain, I'm not a research brain, but for those of you who've been with us over the last few months, you'll have seen that about once a month, we've spoken to just a few nuggets of the research findings and the statistics that have come out in this report, and I thought I'd gift this to you as a bit of light Christmas time reading, if you choose to take it home with you. But this morning, I'm just going to alert us again to two or three of the key findings that have come out of the research. Why are we revisiting it? Well, because I hope, certainly what we've seen that have come out the six-way partnership of the Evangelical Alliance that I work with and Alpha and um, Kingsgate and Hope Together and all those people that have put it together. Actually, what comes out of it are some great nuggets of real encouragement for us, but also some great challenge as well. And the two go pretty well together, don't they? Otherwise, we'd all pat ourselves on the back as the church and say, aren't we doing a great job? But let me just remind you, This research came out in spring 2022, and we've been speaking to it across the nation with leaders, with individual Christians, in the hope that it would both encourage and infuse us to be able to see people like you, like me, talk about Jesus in our everyday situations. So, if we go on to the next slide, what the research shows us is that we mapped the state of faith across the UK in terms of evangelism in early 2022. And so that's pretty close to us. It still holds today as we look to go into 2024. But I just want to share with you two or three things that came out. You might remember some of the things we've spoken about in previous months if you were with us. One of the statistics was that when we asked our non-Christian friends, the 4,000 people that were surveyed through this research... When we asked non-Christians if they knew a practising Christian, we found that 53% of the UK said that they knew a practising Christian. So somebody who goes to church at least monthly and would say that they read the Bible and pray weekly. If you remember, you might have heard me mention that before. Um, That actually gives us a bit of an alert because seven years ago, when the original research was done, it was actually 68%. So there's been a drop 
in the sense of how many people know of us. So the challenge within that is that actually, if we're people that know and love the people around us and want to share nuggets of Jesus, then we just need to make ourselves known. But the next slide tells us, sorry, this one, Jacob, thank you, tells us this, that when we ask those people, okay, so if you know a practicing Christian, have you, have a com- have you had a conversation with them? And if so, would you be willing or wanting to go again? Now, this slide is one of my favorites in the whole research because what this research headline tells us is this. One in three of yours or my non-Christian friends or family members said that where they'd had a conversation with a Christian that they know, that could have been you, could be somebody else, one in three people said that they'd like to go again, to go a bit deeper and find out more. Isn't that encouraging? One in three So if you think about who's around your Christmas tables, who you might be having a Christmas drink with, or if, like me, on the side of a football pitch or in the gym or in a studio or wherever you might find yourself, one in three people in front of you would like to know more. What's even more encouraging is if we compare and contrast with the original research, seven years ago, this was one in five. So actually what it shows us is there has been this shift, this unleveling of the ground around us, often through the pain, the trauma, the reeling, the challenge, the cost of living, the death of a queen, all of these things. What we're seeing nationally, and I'm sure you're seeing locally, is people are really open and wanting and willing to know more. Maybe not the whole gospel, but they want to know about how our faith impacts our life. Next question. Um, we asked people, if this is to the Christians, if you've had a conversation about Jesus, how confident do you feel? The next slide told us this. As we looked at practicing Christians within the church, as you can see here, we found that this, actually some of these stats really surprised me. It told us that 75% of people, Christians, said that that they did know that it was part of our job as Christians, born out of the Great Commission in the Bible, that actually it's part of our job to share Jesus with the people around us. This one surprised me. 77% of us, individual Christians like you and me, said that actually we feel really confident doing that. I would have halved that statistic. I don't know about you, but I don't see we always feel that confident. But maybe it is that we feel confident, we know it's part of our job, but the question is, do we actually do it? 40% of people, as you can see on the third graph there, 40% said, do you know what, I just fear that if I open up those conversations, we'll get those big questions that I just won't know how to answer. Well, that's perfectly understandable, isn't it? I'm sure you, like me, have been there. 40% of us feel a bit anxious as to where those conversations might go. But this last one, again, I think provides a real challenge for us that comes out of the Talking Jesus research, which is this, that 42% of us say that, you know what, we just don't know enough non-Christians or we don't feel that we know them well enough to actually share something of our faith or our life journey with them. Well, Christmas provides a great opportunity for that, doesn't it? We're out of our work bubbles. We're maybe out of our meetings, church meetings as well, dare I say. Actually, within that, we have great opportunity to share Jesus with those around us. What does that look like? It may not even be mentioning the word of Jesus, but it might be something about how your faith, your journey, the ups and downs, the things that you've been through have actually challenged and changed you and maybe how God's had an impact into the middle of that. So we have great opportunity, but let me just flick back as we close to asking, again, our non-Christian friends, as we did in the research, next slide please, Jacob, we asked them this, if you've had a conversation with that practicing Christian friend, family member, neighbor, acquaintance, if you've had a conversation with them, what is it that you remember from that? We can see here, and hopefully you can read, there's lots of different answers, but... It's worth us pointing out that the top answer was that, as you can see here, at 33%, that person said 
that what they remember from that conversation was that the, the Christian that they know asked them, first and foremost, about their own life, their own journey, their own faith maybe within that. Closely followed by our second answer, 30% of people said they then remember that that practicing Christian went on to share something of their own journey. Isn't that interesting? It immediately tells us that this isn't a capture the moment, tell them the whole gospel. It tells us that it's about relationships, about friendships, about dialogue. It's about being normal. It's entering into conversations about life, the struggles, the joys, the challenges, the pain, and aligning ourselves with other people. Because in that, and my favourite stat on this, is the 6% of people who said that even in that conversation, they could recall that they had a spiritual encounter in the midst of that, whether that's because of us or despite of us. Hopefully today it encourages us that in those conversations, around your dinner tables, in the party times, in the new year, wherever we find ourselves alongside our Christian and non-Christian friends, actually we need to be people who are willingly wanting to share those nuggets of faith, because in the midst of that, they can really have a true, meaningful, impactful spiritual encounter with Jesus, who we know and love. Are you up for that? Hopefully, if anything, all of this does is it simplifies actually how we can just be normal people living amongst others to really make Jesus known. So let me pray if that's okay, and then I'll hand back to Paula. Jesus, in this season, we just pray, Lord, against this backdrop of realising that actually those who don't yet know you are on a journey towards you because we believe, Lord, that for those people that we know and love in our lives, our family members, our wider friendship groups, the people in our workplaces or those that we come across in the street, Lord, we know that our culture is reeling and is seeking out light and truth and hope. And I pray this Christmas time, Lord, would we release ourselves to just be people who enter into those conversations to speak of your truth and your hope, and maybe to mention you in ways that, Lord, outside of us, your Holy Spirit will use and make them meaningful to those around us. So we just offer ourselves to you, Lord. Would you use us? Would you equip us? Would you inspire us? And may we really make you known in this season. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, Rachel. That's so encouraging, isn't it? Some amazing figures there. Thank you. Look forward to the bedtime reading. Thank you. Um, Right, I'd like to invite Nigel up now to bring today's reading. Thanks, Paula. The reading today tells us what happened 2,000 years ago and simply what it means to us today. It comes from John 1 verse 1 to 14 from the NIV version. The Word became flesh. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light, so that through him all might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognise him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, 
to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision, or a husband's will, but born of God. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Amen. Nigel, thank you. Um, I'd like to invite John up now to bring our message. Just pray for you, John, before. There you go. <laughs> okay. okay. Father God, we thank you for John being with us this morning, Lord, um, and we just ask that you would equip him and enable him to bring his word to us, Lord, through him. And we just pray that you'll touch every one of us through his word this morning. Amen. Well done. Thank you. All right. I'll say that all again. (laughs) Good morning to you. (laughs) Happy Christmas, if I don't get a chance to say it later. Um, Thank you, Nigel, for that little introduction at the beginning of the reading, because you're absolutely spot on. You remember that uh, some some people uh, were were talking to the disciples, and then the disciples were asked the question by Jesus, who do people say I am? And that reading helps us to understand quite a lot about who Jesus is. And there's lots of ways we might describe who we are. We might say we're a husband or a father or a a mother or a daughter. We might say that we work in IT or or in nursing. There's lots of ways we might do that. Some of the ways we do that is to say about where we come from who we are from where we come from. And that might be very distinctive for us. Just recently, last few weeks, Karen and I have been doing our our, um, family trees. And we've been doing it because we did a DNA test. And that told us something about our backgrounds. Uh, And that prompted us, because the apps are very cleverly written by the IT people to make you pay lots of money, uh, it's prompted us to want to do our family tree. Now, I grew up not even knowing my grandparents' names. So this was a major revelation for me. It was like a real surprise. The only thing I knew that was that my parents, um, on my father's side and his family and family and family, came from Doncaster in Yorkshire, and the others came from Bristol. Okay, So that was where we were at. And slowly, over the last few weeks, I've been putting together my family tree so that I could say, who do people say I am? Well, I am part from Yorkshire and part from the West Country. And, and we've produced a little family tree. Karen's done a lot more than I have. But it, oh, that's it. It looks a little bit like this. And I put a big arrow pointing at me. And below me is my two children, my two daughters, and my two uh, son in laws. And then there's this little group of people ahead of me, uh, above me, uh, that, that pans out. People had such huge families in those days. I mean, they all had 12 children. There was one, one of my relatives had 12 children by one woman, and then, two, then she died. I'm not quite surprised, to be honest, because she'd had one every, other, every year. And then he married another woman and had two more, 14 children. And when you look at the little picture of his house, it was tiny. How did he manage? Who knows? Anyway, so I haven't discovered anything very significant, except a couple of rather interesting things. Well, one of the interesting things I discovered is that my family on my mother's side 
don't come from uh, Bristol at all. I mean, they, my mother came from Bristol and uh, lots of her relatives came from Bristol. They came from Huntingdon. Walking distance from where I live. That's nuts, isn't it? Uh, and, and as a result of that, um, and I'm going into this system, there was a woman in Bristol who, who's a very distant relative, said the other thing you won't have worked out yet is that if you follow your mother's family tree down, and one of the other lots of the 12 brothers and sisters, you will come to Louise Brown, the first test tube baby. So I'm famous. Well, I've got famous relatives, at any rate. I can say, yeah, you know, I'm distantly very... That's that little right-hand side. There's, ha- there's thousands of us at that point, OK? So don't think it's very important. But it's lovely to think that I actually know... I'm distantly related to somebody who's famous. Well, all of this brings us back to that question, who do we say... You, who do people say I am? The question that Jesus ans- asks. And... It's really quite important, in fact, it's very important that we kind of understand who Jesus is. We understand his words very often, we understand that he came at Christmas, we understand that he he was uh, uh, crucified and rose again and returned to heaven and sent his Holy Spirit, all those things. But who is Jesus? So I thought we'd look at that. Because that passage I was asked to speak on, uh, in, certainly in John 1.14, absolutely spells it out. So that's really what I'm going to be thinking about for the next while. Where we don't understand these things, where we err on who Jesus is, sadly, we get ourselves into a real muddle. And that people have done that for 2,000 years. So this is really quite important And really what we want to say, uh, in those words from 1 John 14, uh, this is my sort of paraphrase of of that verse. Jesus, the eternal word, is God in human flesh, glorious as the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And one of the things that Christians have always believed is that actually Jesus has two natures. He has two natures because he is both fully God and fully human. And because he has two natures, he, sorry, let's go back to that. He has two natures. One comes from God and one comes from his humanity. And so you could draw a little family tree if you wanted to. You could say there's God and there's uh, his humanity And that makes Jesus. But what does that actually mean? What does it look like to say those things? What does it look like when when John writes about Jesus who is both God, the Word, and also he came and dwelt amongst us? And Christians have always believed that Jesus has two natures. One nature is God and one nature is uh, human. And trying to work that out is a real challenge. But this is an amazing miracle. A kind of, if you take away a concept this morning, take away the idea of the most miraculous thing that has ever happened. Some Bible teachers would put it this way. They would say that it is more miraculous that Jesus comes as God and human, as man, than the creation. That's... That in itself is a really kind of profound thought. Because when you think about it, God creates the all-powerful God 
comes as a human being. So the fact that God can become a human being is itself an amazing miracle. And actually, everything else flows from that, that God has come as a human being. One writer puts it this way, the fact that the infinite, eternal Son of God could become a man and join himself to human nature forever, so that the infinite God became one person with finite man, will remain for eternity the most profound miracle and most profound mystery. And actually, mixed up in what what, uh, uh, the writer is saying there is the idea, of course, that Jesus remains a man, returned to heaven, one seated on the throne, one who is in heaven, is eternally man and eternally God. Helps us sort out some of those strange things which children ask us. So we say, how can I accept Jesus into my heart? Because Jesus is a man. Well, it's because Jesus is in heaven. He sends his Holy Spirit to fill our lives. That's our encounter with the living God. So how, how can we explain this? Well, firstly, I want, there are several things we could say. And 1 John 14 says to us that Jesus comes as fully God. It comes in verse 1 as well. In the beginning was God. And have you ever noticed there's a past tense in that? In the beginning was the word. There's a past tense. In the beginning, before the beginning, there was Jesus. Before anything existed, there was Jesus. Depending on your scientific view and how you fit it with your faith, before the Big Bang, there was Jesus with the Father and the Spirit engaged in creation. Genesis chapter 1. That's, that's who we are talking about here. Make no doubt about it. The scriptures are absolutely crystal clear that he pre-existed all that exists. He has no beginning. He is with the Father and the, the Spirit. One, uh, John 10.30 tells us that. He's part of the triune God who is the only eternal being. And one of the ways in which people have misunderstood that for 2,000 years or not is to deny that Jesus is fully God. And there's a whole lot of people who have done that over time. So one of the, most, one of the first things that the, uh, people in the early church began to get wrong was that there was a really popular teaching which said that Jesus was the first cre- and the greatest created being. Often this was because people 2,000 years ago found it almost impossible to understand how good could suffer. So they're trying to say the person who suffered on the cross couldn't possibly have been God. So he must have been created by God. And that's, a, that's a, a, an early uh, heresy. Satan hates the idea that we understand who Jesus is. So, so there's always a demonic or uh, 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 opposing the deity of who Jesus is. And so, over time, over the first couple of hundred years, the church had to get together and think about these things and came back with what we often call uh, the, um, 
uh, these classic statements about who Jesus is. It's a view that is still expressed today. Unitarians believe that. Liberal theologians will pick it up and say, no, no, um, uh, Jesus sort of became God at some point or another, or simply wasn't God at all, or thought he was kind of God. Uh, some people would say uh, he, maybe he became God at his baptism. You remember when he was filled with the Spirit? All those kind of things. Jehovah's Witnesses do this. Um, they would say that uh, uh, in the beginning was a, a word, because they misunderstand how you translate some of the Greek. Um, and um, Mormons do this as well. Lots of people do this. Uh, Muslims, in terms of their faith, see Jesus as a prophet, of course, and not as uh, God. So there's lots of people who out there would, would um, try and hold that Jesus isn't God. And uh, this, is, uh, uh, this is not the new. Testament teaches. The New Testament teaches quite the reverse. And as you read the New Testament, you realize that in there, there is this idea that Jesus is God. It's clearly expressed. uh, He's eternal. John 1, 1, for example, you've thought about that. Jesus is uh, omnipresent. He's everywhere. Matthew 28, I will be with you to the ends of the earth. He is uh, omnipotent. He's immutable. He's unchangeable. You see, that comes back to the idea that how could... um, how could God change? How could God suffer? Uh, and, and the Bible clearly teaches that, that that's the case. He is glorious, and we see that in so many parts of the scriptures. He is sovereign, Philippians 2.10. In him, all the fullness of the deity dwells in bodily form, Colossians 2.9. The Bible consistently teaches that Jesus is God. But the second thing that it teaches us is that the eternal word took on flesh and became fully human. See, sometimes we get the idea that Jesus sort of walks about six inches above the ground, that he's impervious to the normal stuff of life that he didn't get hungry, for example, or he didn't get thirsty, or his feet didn't ache after he'd been walking from Jerusalem to Bethlehem, or all those things. Jesus became fully human. We see that in a number of ways. In fact, it's quite interesting in this passage uh, that Jesus took on flesh. I, I, I guess that John could have said the word became man, or the word became a human body. But flesh kind of says, oh, that's that's very touchable. That's a a very blunt word. And it might well be that John, in writing this, is is trying to press the point against another very early church heresy that was already in existence by the time he came to write this, that somehow Jesus wasn't fully God. Uh, Sorry, somehow he wasn't fully human. And therefore, uh, he takes upon, he appears to be human. He takes, it seems to be human, but he wasn't fully human. John wants us to know that Jesus is fully human, except that he doesn't sin. 
That's why in the scriptures it says that he experienced everything that we experienced. He cried, he wept. I mean, Rachel was talking about the tough times that people have got. Jesus understands that. That's why he can pray for us and intercede for us before the Father, because he's, he experienced all that we experienced, except that he wasn't sinful. And so he, we find that he is holy God and holy a person. What does that passage that we often sing about, who being in very nature God, Philippians 2, he made himself nothing, being made in human likeness, or as the song goes, he laid aside his majesty, gave up everything for me. And when Jesus comes, he lays aside some, his, the glory of being God, he lays aside the, the holding the whole world together, as Colossians 2 tells us, and what he does is he becomes... L- as human. He has these two natures, both God and both human. And two, he he adds this perfect humanity. He becomes someone who is tempted like us, but doesn't sin. The only way in which Jesus in his humanity is not like us is he doesn't sin. And so people over many, many, many years have argued that this, if, it, if Jesus is God, then he can't be human as well. What people have often said is <coughs> something like this. They say, well, maybe he, maybe he was flesh and bones like you, but he didn't have a human soul. He, his soul was that of, of God. No, he had human soul as well. Not, not two persons. That, you know, that he, he, he was two separate people, just like these two people on the opposite sides of this room are. There was a God bit of him and there was a human bit of him. Not a hybrid God-man, which is something you come across really regularly uh, as we try and explain who Jesus is, that somehow he was the merging of something, becomes something that is hybrid, that he's unique in that sense, that he's neither human nor God. And one of the classic ways it's described these days, I've seen this in, in, in a variety of writing, there's a, there's a guy called Watchman Lee, not Watchman Nee, but Watchman Lee, and he, put, he puts it this way, he says, if you, if you get some boiling water and you pour it onto tea, you get something different. You get, you, you get tea rather than tea leaves and idea. Now, we are very tempted sometimes to, to try and explain who Jesus is in that kind of way. Actually, that's not the case. He's not a hybrid. He's not a one-off in that sense. And we come back to the idea that God didn't suffer on the cross. Very often, people who want to say we are not sinful people, people who want to say that we do not need to get right with a God who can't stand sin and therefore needs to have a sin sacrifice, want to say, therefore, God could not have suffered on the cross. In that sense, God, this helps you with your Easter, God doesn't, God in that sense doesn't die on the cross. That's the horror of Easter, that Jesus, man and God, dies on the cross, fully human. Not just his human part, God did suffer on the cross for you and I. Only he, the sinless one, could take upon himself the sin of the world. So you see how important these things are. 
when we were out talking Jesus, um, one of the things that I've often discovered is people will say, well, I like to think of Jesus like that. He was a great teacher, which is true. I like to think of Jesus as a very kind person, which is true. And we're trying to grapple here with the fact that this Jesus that we are celebrating at Christmas who comes as a baby is both God and man. The word came, uh, the word was made flesh and dwelt amongst us. It's curious, actually, that some parts of the Christian church, even to this day, will hold this view of Jesus not being fully human. And they try and hold that in terms of some of the, middle, the ancient Middle Eastern church uh, groupings uh, hold this view. So we could sum this point, our first two points this, today, we could sum it up into, uh, in this kind of statement, comes from another of the great Bible teachers of our generation. Jesus is the eternal divine son from the Father by the agency of the Spirit. Remember, the Spirit came upon Mary and she conceived, took uh, into union with himself a complete human nature apart from sin. As a result, Jesus now and forever exists as one person in two natures, our Lord and Saviour. This is the historic belief and faith of the church for 2,000 years. And it's, it's who we celebrate at Christmas, and it's who we celebrate uh, in his risen nature at uh, Easter, and it's who dies on the cross for you and me, and it's he who teaches us, and he who demonstrates what humanity can be like. A couple of other things uh, before I finish about uh, who Jesus is. Jesus, the eternal word, it says in one uh, John 1.14, Jesus, the eternal word, dwelt amongst us. And that's an unusual word to use. You see, the scriptures always use this word. We, <coughs> we might say he came and lived amongst us. But the scripture says he came and dwelt amongst us. That's because there's a very special use of this word. And if you were to literally translate this, uh, 1 John 14, you would translate it as Jesus, the eternal word, tabernacled, among us. That's a funny old word, to tabernacle. Why is it using this word tabernacle? And he's using the word tabernacle because in the Old Testament, remember when, when the people of God, they moved on and moved on during their time in Sinai. And, and, they, and God said, build me a tent, a tabernacle, and I will dwell in that place. And when they moved... Uh, there was fire and smoke, so they, they knew that God was still with them. And then they built a temple, and it all became very much more formalised and all the rest of it. But uh, in the early days, that's, and that's why he uses the word tabernacle, because this is where God dwelt. When, you, when those people you read about in the scriptures met Jesus, they met God. Therefore, he was able to do his miracles. Therefore, he was, he was able to, 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 to live as they lived because they, Jesus actually came and dwelt among us. So the tabernacle was a funny old place, but it is really worth remembering that when people met Jesus, they met the one 
quite deliberately expressed like this, who was dwelling among us. It wasn't that you kind of could go up to Jesus and touch him and somehow uh, your hand went through him like he was some kind of ghost figure. What, what What they experienced was the presence of God with them in Jesus, just like the people of of old had experienced the presence of God when they met at the temple and they uh, at the tabernacle. Um, sometimes they got glimpses of this, didn't they, at the transfiguration? Uh, and maybe that's also that's what uh, John is also referring to, uh, that there was a moment when him and Peter and James were given a, a, a glimpse of who Jesus was. And they certainly saw it in the miraculous that happened as well. He deliberately chooses this word tabernacle to remind him that Jesus came and dwelt amongst us. And then finally, really, the apostles saw the glory of the word who became flesh. Just at the end of that passage, we read about the way in which Jesus demonstrated the kind of nature that he had. We saw his glory, he says, We saw his glory supremely shown in in the cross. When Judas went out from the upper room to betray the Saviour, Jesus said, now the Son of Man is glorified and God is glorified in him. And so at the end of this passage, we, we read that Jesus, uh, John says that he's the only son from the Father. Jesus has no equal. I, I love the idea that Jesus is, is very unique in this sense. He's, he's, he, there's not going to be another son who comes in the same way. God wasn't, didn't have a, a lineup of people that he might have chosen. He is, the, he is the unique son of God who, will, who has come and is coexistent with the Father. But do you notice what he also said? It said this word was full of grace and truth. Full of grace and truth. His grace offers to you and me love and compassion in our fallen nature. His grace is always there to to pick us up, set us off afresh. His nature is always to to be with the poor and the hungry and the crowd. And his his nature is always to, to, to choose those who are damaged and hurting which brings us back to what Rachel... I love following Rachel when I come and speak here because she's already cleared the way. He's, he's, he's there doing the things that you're describing that Nigel was talking about, somebody else was talking about over, over here, that you know, you've been out amongst those who are in need. And that's where you'd find Jesus. You'd find this grace, this compassion that he has. Of course, the grace of God works that we don't actually ever, ever earn it either. It always comes from God. It always comes from the love of God into our lives. always comes because we don't earn Jesus. He earned us on the cross. But also grace and truth. It reminds us of the fact that, that there is a transaction which will take place, not at, not at Christmas, but at Easter, when the truth that uh, we are sinful, damaged people 
who damage ourselves and damage other people, and then we inherit that damage through our family tree that goes back to Adam. And therefore, we need to know the truth of our, of our salvation rests on Jesus and Jesus alone. So the apostles saw the glory of the word uh, had become flesh. Jesus was full of grace. And since, that, since he's full of grace, you can come to him and know that he will welcome you. It's full of truth because what he taught and what he did actually makes a difference. So I thought I'd do my own little wrapping up here today. Did the word become flesh? Did the word become flesh for you and me? If he becomes flesh, he's the one who has touched with the, 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 he is the one who can touch our infirmities, our damage. Because he suffered because he was tempted. He is the almighty one because he can sympathise and empathise with you. That's who God is. Only works if God became flesh and dwelt amongst us. Is this the Jesus that you recognise? Is this the one that you have prayed to and worshipped today? Did the word become flesh? Then he can provide us with the pattern for life. Having dwelt amongst us, we can now see the standard of holiness in our, that we can aspire to as the Spirit uh, empowers us. We see in Jesus how humanity can live. Somebody would say to you, what does God look like? He looks like Jesus. And he walked like Jesus. He talked like Jesus. He shared his life like Jesus. And that helps us to know the kind of people we are encouraged to do. We walk as he walked. Did the word become flesh? Then let's remind ourselves that our true humanity is not defined by sin but being made in the image of God. And the image of God looks like Jesus. And so there's real dignity in that. And for those of us that are Christians, there's real dignity in that because we have been transformed by God. We know where our future lies, in the presence of the one who still looks and walks and talks like the one who came and was born on that first Christmas died on a cross and rose again and waits to welcome us as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And it all is because Jesus came, human and God, two natures, or as Charles Wesley puts it in a carol that we will sing regularly for these next few weeks and a bit. Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. Hail the incarnate deity. Let's pray together.